0: Welcome to Guns, Knives, and Lipstick, the podcast where four female crime fiction authors explore the delights, disasters, and demands of the publishing journey and chat with those who share that journey with us. We're your hosts, Carrie Peresta, C.L. Tolbert, Mally Becker, and Liz Miller. Join us as we chat with some of our favorite authors and go behind the scenes of their writing lives. So let's get to it, shall we? Welcome, everyone, to this month's episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. I am Liz Miller, um, and today, for this episode, I am very excited to be welcoming author John Didacus to the show. Um, A little bit about John. John is a former editor on CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf, Wolf Blitzer. He is the author of five mystery suspense novels, his fourth novel, Bullet in the Chamber, is the winner of Reviewers Choice, Forward Indies, and Feathered Quail Book Awards. In his most recent novel, Fake, protagonist Lark Chadwick is a White House correspondent trying to walk the line between personal feelings and dispassionate objectivity in the era of fake, no- fake news and Me Too. Fake earned honorable mention for the Reviewer's Choice Award and was a finalist for Killer Na- Nashville's Silver Felchon Award. Didakas is a former White House correspondent, a manuscript editor, and regularly teaches novel writing online and at literary centers, writers' conferences, and bookstores around the country and abroad. He is also a jazz drummer. Welcome, John.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: A jazz drummer. I love that.
1: That's well, cool. I'm not that, I'm not that good, but.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, jazz is all improvisational, right? It's, it
1: is, but you, know. you have to have some, you have to have some chops to do that. And uh, well,
0: that's true. Uh, I'm in,
1: I'm in learning mode.
0: Ah, okay. Well, Hey, it's always good to have a, something that non-writing to, you know, this is get true. the juices be a little creative in other ways. Um, So. Starting off our list is a really easy one. Um, Basically, give us your elevator pitch for fake themes and a couple of sentences.
1: Oh, my. Well, fake is about a young woman trying to figure out what to do with her life. That's Lark Chadwick. She becomes a journalist. And by the time fake rolls around, she's a White House correspondent and the victim of fake news.
0: Ooh. Because of course we all hear a lot of fake news. That was like a big thing, especially just recently with the most recent presidential election. Um, that mm-hmm. would be that. Yeah.
1: Hey, yes. Hey, it- Tom, this
0: is
2: this is Mally Becker. Um and and I I thought your book was great. And you, you start off pretty close to the beginning with your main character uh, having a gotcha interview on on another network. And I had a feeling that a lot of um your opinions about that type of journalism made their way into that into that interview.
1: Um, is that that's the question?
2: Well I guess the question is um it, was that your setup for for your theme of fake news
1: I tried to I, I started writing fiction back in 2000 well actually actually in 1994 but it took 10 years to get the edit to get the agent that i've got and the agent i've got is like the 39th agent i queried so the novel went through like 14 major revisions and by the time it came became got got published it was 2005 which was still way before the whole fake news thing um although i will say that um criticism of journalism, well, it it goes all the way back, but probably in the recent era during Nixon's presidency, where Vice President Spiro Agnew went around the country uh, criticizing the news media as nattering nabobs of negativism or an an, an effete core of impudent snobs, which is just another clever way of saying fake news. And of course, Nixon didn't like the press coverage he got. And as it turns out, the press coverage was pretty accurate. And yeah. it's the job of the press secretary to make the president look perfect. And it's our job as reporters to find out what really is going on. And so because I know journalism, my, uh, my novels are set with a journalism backdrop. And so it just became fortuitous and serendipitous that By the time Trump came along, my fourth, my fifth novel came along so that what I really try to do is to give people a glimpse behind the scenes as to how journalism really operates, because I think people really do think that we sat around the table in 2008 saying, how are we going to get Obama elected, and that's not the way it's done at least not in reputable news organizations. Reputable news organizations have editors who, who make it difficult for stories to get on the air or in print because they're constantly asking, where'd you get this? How'd you know? How do you know it's true? You know, mm-hmm. who are your sources? And so the level of, uh, 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 of vetting that it takes to get a story into print or in, on the air is incredibly high. People don't understand that. And they just feel that if their opinion is not represented as articulately as they articulate it to themselves, well, it's just fake. You know, they don't like to hear opposite opinions and differing opinions. And so uh um, in my novels, you'll see examples of good journalism and bad journalism because journalists are people and people <laughs> have shortcomings, they have biases even the even the reputable journalists have biases, but the professional knows how to identify what the bias is and to guard against it.
0: Yeah, the, it always I have this conversation with people sometimes. It's like at the New York Times, they're not all just sitting down writing the story and sending it directly to press. Right. That might be happening someplace else, but it's not happening at any major quality newspaper in the country.
1: Well, and it's also happening. Here's the problem with social media. Anybody who's got a cell phone and can hit share, they're a journalist, they're publishing, Mm -hmm. but there's no editor on your shoulder saying, where'd you get that? How do you know it's true? Which means we all have a personal responsibility to be very careful about what we propel out there.
0: Right. So what I don't know if we talked to, I don't know if you might've touched on this, but what drew you to fake this particular book? What was your desire when you started? Well, I
1: mean, I I started writing it when Trump was elected president and I didn't write it so that it would be an anti-Trump polemic, but I was certainly troubled by his statements that, you know, journalists are the enemy of the American people. That's just false. And I, expected that he was going to be a scandal a day president and uh, I don't think I was too far off the mark <laughs> um, but so I I really was I I wanted to show what it's like to be a victim of fake news because you know I've got friends who are reporters who are targets because they're a report they're reporters I mean Trump targeted them at his rallies mm-hmm. And I mean some of my friends had to be accompanied with security to their cars, because the atmosphere was so hostile, because of the way he he ginned up the crowd. And so, um, I, the, the reader knows from from the very beginning of the story, what's the truth, and then they see how. Things can go south for a person, there are consequences when you make up stories about another person and then propel them out there into the ozone. So that's what that's what the motive was.
0: No, you were not very wrong. Trump was almost a a scandal-a-day president. We're not going to talk politics here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so when you're writing this novel, how do you find a balance between you've got a lot of facts, but then the fictional story? And how do you find the balance between the two?
1: Well, with fiction, you do have the the freedom to make things up. And that took me a while to when I because I was still a working journalist at CNN when I started writing fiction. And it took me a while to give myself permission to make things up in, in my stories, and I think the balance is, and and I teach writing, and, and a lot of the students that I have are interested in writing memoir, you know, which mm-hmm. is nonfiction, but they're concerned about, you know, alienating family members or getting sued. And so my suggestion is to fictionalize it, at least camouflage the information so that someone can't identify themselves. Um, but if you really want to tell the capital T truth. You can make mm-hmm. up small t factual details. You know, if a person is a jerk, you can change all of the, the specific details about that person and still basically tell a pretty compelling story about what a jerk is like. So, yeah, the, the balance I, I don't know if there is a balance other than just, you know, you have the freedom to make things up, uh, but you can still tell the truth.
0: Yeah, I forget the author who said that, that fiction is a lie that tell, that exposes the truth or a lie that tells the truth or something.
1: That makes sense, um, yeah. And,
0: and it's pretty much what you're talking about, right? You, you, you're not telling the absolute big T truth, but you've got all the details in there. The and and
1: another way of saying it is that journalism deals with facts, fiction deals with truth.
0: Well, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. So you were a journalist for 45 years, um, including a stint as a White House correspondent, which could be a whole other episode of this podcast, just having you tell stories. Um, How have those years as a journalist affected your writing?
1: Well, you draw, I mean, any writer, no matter what career they do uh, have had, you write what you know, you draw from personal experience, whether it's the macro details or even the microscopic details of your life. And so, uh, uh, I'm drawing from personal experience, but I'm also using my imagination to uh, 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 try to understand something that I don't have, you know, experience in as well. And that's it's no different for me than it is for any fiction writer, really.
3: Well, um, I was impressed with how well you um, um, take us through the emotion of a situation. I'm um, a retired lawyer, and and so is Nally. And lawyers are very fact-based people too, just like reporters. Right. And I find that personally a little more difficult to get into the emotive issues and and how to describe that type of thing. But I thought you did it well. Do you find it difficult, or does that flow easily for you?
1: Thank you. It, it is difficult for me because it's I'm a just the facts, ma'am, journalist, and. I mean, it, 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 there's, you probably are familiar with Hank Phillippe Ryan, who's the best oh, novelist. And she's also an uh, a multi Emmy award winning journalist. And she and I both went through the same experience. We're of about the same age. And um, she tells the story of she was she was on a story and she asked the person she was interviewing, how did you feel about that? And she got reamed out by her news director for asking a touchy-feely question. You know, he basically said, well, that's not news. And I went through the same thing when I started to do a grief documentary because, you know, we'd cover car accidents and murders, but I began to wonder, well, what happens after the accident is cleaned up? You know, the what's the personal story behind that? It took me, it took me a long time to actually get them to green light the story. And then it was always a... a Like pulling teeth to get a camera to get in it to do an interview because you know that wasn't considered news, and uh, and I think Oprah probably you know was the first one to break the you know the ceiling on that to make people understand that emotions and psychology you know that's really where the news is, and so I would say in answer to your question, um, you know the first draft for me is dialogue. And, you know, people say, oh, I love your descriptions. Well, what they don't know is that's, that's, the, that's the rewrite process where you sprinkle the fairy dust in. You know, there's one in Fast Track, my first novel, there's a scene at the end in a crowded diner on a Saturday morning. And those are really noisy. And uh, something happens and everybody stops talking. It was probably the eighth draft where I heard the bacon and eggs sizzling on the grill you know, yeah. so so yeah. you know right. it's it's you have to just step back and try to immerse yourself into the experience. And I think that you know, sort of mindful breathing, mindful uh mindfulness helps you access some of those things that you know aren't necessarily part of your wheelhouse at first. Right.
3: Well, thank it's
1: you for the a- beautiful answer. I'm Cindy Talbert, by the way. Hi, Cindy. It's- that's my wife's name too good name good
0: (laughs) well and you know it's interesting what i'm both surprised and unsurprised that it took you so long to get like quote unquote permission to talk about emotion because when i mean in my mind those kind of pieces of journalism are stories and fiction writers are also telling stories it's just telling a story from a different perspective right right exactly you know and it's so yeah i well, think you're and probably and right a, about over and it and a
1: deeper perspective because you're immersing your reader in the life of your right. protagonist and the other other characters so it's much it's much more fulsome than a newspaper story
2: oh yeah yeah a, a newspaper so, story is a couple of hundred words and and it's a shorthand right and, and you're right. unpacking that
0: in a novel yeah.
1: yeah yeah
0: so we touched you touched on this a little bit earlier but we'll let's let's dig into it a little bit more. Um, Two-part question is, has journalism evolved over the years, do you think? And do you see social media as a blessing or a curse
1: to journalism? Journalism has, I would argue, devolved over time. (laughs) You know, I think that, I think there was a time when it was just the facts journalism. And I think that social media has had a hand in accentuating the good in journalism i mean i wish we'd had cell phones and i wish we'd had the internet when i was a reporter um <clears throat> but that's also a big problem because the proliferation of lies are just uh, tremendous they're they're you know there's a saying that, it, that the, the, a lie can go around the world before the truth even could put its pants on so yeah. that's that's always been a, a problem and it's just more so now the news cycle isn't just a day anymore it's every minute you know and I think at the wire services the axiom is every minute is a deadline and so <clears throat> so journalism has definitely changed and part of it is because of the technology it's just it's just faster it's instant you can see things as they happen uh, whereas you know 150 years ago it took weeks to get the story um, I mean, I think it was uh, World War One, or 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 you know, some one of those early wars. You know, some people, or maybe it was the Civil War. People didn't get the word that the word war was over for a week or two. So, uh, <clears throat> so, arguably, we can we have the potential to really be one, to to be united because we have at our fingertips, you know, everything that we need to know. But we're so fractured as a society that we have our own niches we have our own uh echo chambers that we feel comfortable in and uh uh and so uh we have the capacity to 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 really be together but uh we're so polarized that that i think has been a problem and i think that you know, to a certain extent, the news media is responsible for the polarization. I I feel that broadcast journalism, CNN included, um, it seems as though right now there's an eff- effort to build, you know, to generate more light or more heat than light. You know what mm-hmm. what makes what makes for compelling uh, 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 viewing is the friction. You know the mm-hmm. the the, uh, the differences of opinion. And uh, and less of a, a search for understanding, which is why, you know, the only broadcast outlet I watch or listen to is NPR, because I think they do play it straight. And there's a real attempt to go deep and to be under and to understand yeah, um, I agree. as opposed and, and I and I get my news from like the Associated Press, Reuters, you know, I read it. Uh, because yeah. I don't want to sit there and watch them, you know, shout at each other, you know, I don't need that. That doesn't, yeah. inform, that doesn't inform me.
0: Well, that, well that, that. yeah, that's pretty much where I get mine as well Is you know, get yeah. it off the, the Reuters news wire, the AP wire, and I yeah, yeah. just, there's a time, but you know, it's interesting. Um, so you mentioned CNN, and you worked for CNN, and, and in my mind, CNN was really the first channel to bring up the 24-hour news cycle
3: mm-hmm. like
0: that was all uh, the only thing that was on cnn 24 hours a day it was news right and do you think that that need to have something new to say i've like every hour every half hour of changed news from adjust the facts to more of a of a quasi entertainment
1: or Ooh, um that's that's very thought provoking. I'm not sure. Th- I think that that may have been a factor. But I go back to the Today Show. The Today Show has been around since the 50s. And it mm-hmm. used to be produced by NBC News. And way back, I think in the 70s, it began to be produced by NBC Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so really, and I, and I do think it comes, it's not so much a CNN thing as it is a broadcast thing. You know, news is infotainment. And mm-hmm. so the goal is to make it. That's why the graphic, you know, the, the graphics, the you know, the visuals have to be stimulating. Uh, the stories are getting shorter and shorter. Sound bites. I mean, it used to be normal to have a forty-second sound bite. Now, if you've got a two-second sound bite, you've nailed it. You know, it's it's it it comes back to the uh, the viewer's appetite and desire to be entertained and so to a certain extent we are our own worst enemy because you know they know who's watching and how for how long and they know what they need to do to keep an audience and that's to have bells and whistles and shiny things and and so we we have basically told them that's the way we want it
2: so Uh so it sounds like you're saying that uh journalism is turning into social media entertainment with shorter and shorter pieces.
1: It is, and it's interactive, and it's interactive to a certain extent as well. But yes, I I think that's really the case. And uh, uh, I would like to think that the pendulum is going to swing back. Chris Licht is now the new president of CNN, uh and and he seems to have more of a just the facts approach his desire is to bring cnn you know more into a centrist position uh i there during the trump administration there were anchors who were saying things that i never would have let on the air as a as an editor um because they were giving essays you know mm-hmm. this is this is basically my opinion i didn't necessarily disagree with what they were saying but we had departed from just the facts.
0: Yeah. Now the difference between a news story and an editorial, right? Yeah. Editorial and, and is analysis. where you get put. Yeah.
1: And news analysis. You know, I'm- there's nothing wrong with news analysis, but the problem is that in in newspapers, if you want the news analysis, you go to the op-ed page. Um, mm-hmm. But everything in television is front page. Whatever's on the air is front page, and so uh, you don't you don't have the option to turn to the opinion you're getting it, whether you want it or not.
2: Uh, On a lighter note,
1: (laughs) is there such a um, thing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is. With with your long career um, in television news, has everyone you've ever worked with gotten in touch with you to ask which character they are in your books? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> no i i don't think that's ever happened i i can't no i can't think of a time no right?
0: kidding that wow
1: yeah <laughs> it, apparently this happens to you all all the time though right <laughs> no
0: it has not happened to me but i do know that it has happened to several of my author friends they, they get the question i'm i'm so and so right
2: <laughs> well i i just know i've i've um based one or two of my characters on people I have not, shall we say, enjoyed working with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Recognize yeah. them.
1: Yeah, I mean. But you're if, writing,
0: you're writing historical now, so you can fudge it a little bit more. <laughs> True.
1: I have, I mean, I do, there are some people that I have, there are some co- composite people in there. And if they have recognized themselves, they just never have told me. Um, there's one producer I used to work with. We worked in different cities. And so we communicated by text or phone, and she had a particularly sassy voice, and I just happened to be in communication with her when I was writing my first novel. So Lark Chadwick is, to a certain extent, this producer friend who she didn't even know that, I think she now knows, but uh, (laughs) at the time, you know, for the longest time, she didn't know that she was the voice.
0: That's interesting. Well, that's a that is a perfect segue into the next uh, question, which is you do have a female protagonist. Yeah. Um, and have you found that difficult to write from a woman's point of view?
1: I haven't and I and I, I know that probably sounds conceited, but here's why. Um, I did not really start to write as a woman in any kind of calculated way. Um, when I first started writing fiction, someone suggested that I should write in a way that stretches, who I am, I've never been a woman, at least in this life. So I gave it a try. And what I discovered is that emotions aren't gender specific. We all have the exact same emotions, fear, anger, and you name it. It's just that in my experience, the women in my life are more willing to share their feelings. They're more articulate about the feelings they share. They're drawing from a more varied emotional palette. And so for 25 years, I was at CNN, and many of the people I worked with were young women in their early to mid-20s, and I'd talk to them, and they'd tell me about their boyfriends, their careers, their families, and I'd ask them, you know, what? I asked one person, what's it like for guys to come on to you all the time? And the answer was enlightening. She said, I can tell in the first 20 seconds, A, if I'm interested, and B, if it's safe. I never have mm. to I never have to worry if this is a safe situation. And so the more I talked to women and asked them questions and followed my curiosity, the more I learned about basically how hard it is to be a woman. And then, of course, it helps to have beta readers who are women as well. My agent is a woman. Uh, my daughter Emily uh, 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 was one of my early editors. and so, you know the the more you work at this and get the feedback you need the more confident that i became that i was getting it
3: i that's think that's really interesting and it's so well illustrated in, 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 with lark the lark and um francine sort of um mm-hmm. the way they play off of each other because lark mm-hmm. is so um she's so telling she's she, it's vulnerable and she'll tell the way she feels she's talking about her uh, future looking wobbly at one point in her life and she wanted to ask francine the same thing and she just blew her off of course francine i don't want to reveal anything but she's not the nicest of of folk she she almost comes across masculine, mastermind, as masculinely
1: to me right and, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and there's a dynamic, I mean, from the women yeah. I've talked to, who have sought out uh, older, powerful, more experienced women as mentors, sometimes get blown off completely. And, uh, and it's very disconcerting. Uh, and then there are other women who are in powerful positions who are, who have a mentoring heart. But, uh, but I'm aware of the dynamic of, uh, you know, not all women help each other.
3: So it's really interesting to hear me uh hear you say how you you developed this i know you're you're married to a wonderful woman that helps you have other friends as well but asking the questions you've asked i'm sure it's given you a lot of insight
1: well i find women fascinating i mean they're just they're easier for me to they're easier for me to talk to now than they were when i was I don't know, 19 and 20 and trying to get laid. And that was my only motive. You know, I found I found that there you women go. Are, <laughs> I found that women are fascinating in their own right. And if I don't have a hidden agenda other than just to get to know them, um, I become a better man in the process because the, you know, the women in my life are spectacular. I'm I'm incredibly impressed and and blessed, you know, that they're willing to share their lives with me.
3: Well, that's lovely, I commend you. One of my favorite uh, lines in the book and they're talking about Lark and her foreseeable future. And she said, I only seem to have enough light for the next step. I love that line, that's Thank a beautiful you. line. Yeah, yeah. Just like
1: comment. Well, and that's also uh, uh, something that any wannabe writer should understand that that's the essence of seat of the pants writing. You probably <laughs> only have enough light for the next sentence.
0: I can still identify <laughs> with that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, um, this is kind of a, a longer question, but I'll, I'll try to make it understandable. So, uh, fake, you bring in the Me Too movement right. um, in a couple of different ways, but one of them has Lark in a difficult situation with Francine. Yep. Um, And Francine offers Lark this position as a White House correspondent and Lark says, no, I need more time to think about it. And Francine becomes absolutely enraged and tries to force herself, you know, you know, force herself and make herself in. And at that point, Lark slaps her. And it's right. a very physical reaction. So do you think the abuse of power aspect in that relationship um, is more clearly illustrated between two people of the same sex, between two women.
1: Oh, I don't know. I, that's I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I, I what Lark Lark has anger issues and impulse issues that go all the way back, and she's been trying to moderate those as the series unfolds, and yet she is backed into a corner in a sense, almost literally in this case, and she reacts instinctively and even as she does it, she's conflicted about it. You know, she knows she has just crossed a major line and that she could really be arrested for assault. But on the other hand, it was self-defense, but there are no witnesses. And so I think that that, I don't think that gender is really the issue so much as power is the issue. right? Uh, And I think that that's the dynamic so much as not so much the gender thing. Um, and so uh, so what we, what we see being played out is how Lark deals with something that she knows is a major power imbalance, but also a major injustice. And there, that's the conflict, I think, that's at the root of the Me Too thing. And it's why a lot of women aren't believed because they don't speak up right away. Well, if they speak up right away, they've just killed their career and mm-hmm. and so that makes it agonizing um so yeah that i i i, I don't know if i'm answering your question adequately, yeah you i know, think that's you what's going yeah. on yeah
3: he did i i was impressed with that um particular passage because i did think that it illustrated the, the abuse of power she dangled a million dollars in front of her nose and um and then enforce yourself on her. So yeah. the implication was, if you want this, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it happens all all the time between man and woman. But it was yeah. really illustrated well, I think, in that passage.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So in the book, you've got uh, Lark considering a career change to psychology, which is interesting. <laughs> um, did you ever consider a similar change? Um, and is it possible that Lark will be solving mysteries as a psychologist
1: in the future? <laughs> um I haven't. I mean, I've I've probably I'm too old now to make that kind of a career <laughs> change, but uh no, I can't say that I did i mean i i was going to go into politics my dad was a lawyer we were going to go into practice together and then i was going to go into politics but for the good of the country i went in a new direction
0: you seem Um, too nice to go into politics
1: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you and what what is is uh i have not decided what lark is going to do next i'm working on the sixth novel now and um uh she's That that's not necessarily a factor in this book, but it's still, you know, it's still in the back of her mind, but I'm very drawn to psychology because I think that, and this goes back to writing again, I think that good writing, and I think what it means to be a good writer, you need to understand yourself and you Mm -hmm. need to have curiosity not only about yourself but the world around you and the people you know with that you come in contact with you know especially people outside your bubble you know the more you get to know people of other races genders socioeconomic backgrounds cultures the the wider your horizon is as a writer and as a person and so I find that there's a there's a real similarity between a journalist and a psychologist and a lawyer because you're asking questions. You're trying to find out why. And so I find myself i'm I'm temperamentally I'm sort of a i'm an, i'm an, I'm an extrovert with introvert tendencies uh, who tends to be kind of shy. So I'm a I'm a mess basically, and, and, but but I've but I found in the classes that I teach that a lot of writers, wannabe writers, are introverts or shy or both, and so the idea of marketing, the idea of you know, it's being an introvert from what I understand is exhausting, and so one of the things I suggest is if you're at a cocktail party or you're in a situation that is draining and daunting and frightening ask questions because you have just gotten the spotlight off yourself where you don't want it to be and i've discovered that if you ask other people questions they blossom you know they they are more than willing to you've just given them permission to talk about themselves and you learn when you're listening you're learning and mm-hmm. so you know that's the best place that i think that a, that a shy introvert can be is you know getting the spotlight off themselves. I have no idea how we got on this. I, I, um, just... I that's
3: great. That's <laughs> a great answer. Really good, really
2: good. <laughs> your your character considering psychology.
1: That's it. Yes. yes. It's it's the, it's the human interaction. The that's what makes I think psychology so attractive to Lark because she's been in tense situations. She's diffused situations. She's she's talked bad guys out of doing bad things and it's because she you know she overcomes her impulse to be angry and is more empathetic and and i think empathy is at the root of i think what a good psychologist is and probably one of the reasons she's considering it
0: so one of the things that we're always fascinated about when we have guests on the show is what is your writing journey so what inspired you to, to stop writing, stop doing journalism and start writing mysteries?
1: There was, it was a long transition because I, I mean, I, I think I was always drawn to, 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 um, to writing. Uh, you know, my parents had books in the house and I was always intrigued by that. I, I think I started, started writing when I was like nine years old, pretty rudimentary stuff. But it was always journalism and it was always, you know, just the facts, public, public policy, things like that. And I think the transition happened back in the 90s, early 90s, um, when I began to do research on a friend's life, a friend who was murdered in South Georgia. And I started to do research on him. I, I met with his widow, interviewed her extensively. She put me in touch with his mistress. Uh, So it was going to be a really good story. But in the process of interviewing the widow, I learned a lot more about the family, things that she had never told her kids. And she had like five kids, uh, grown adults by this time. And they became very concerned that I was starting to prey on the family. And this caused just a lot of consternation. And so I backed off from the project because I certainly, you know, I didn't want to uh, cause a lot of problems. So I basically took a lot of my research and poured it into fiction. And I think it was my mm. wife who said, "You know, you can take this and fictionalize it." Wow. So I did. <laughs> you know, I mean, and so one of my one of my characters has, you know, is similar to the person I was researching. And I'm not going to tell you who or any of that. <laughs> but uh, but that's that's how it really began, and then. Uh, And then I never looked back because fiction really was so freeing to be able to make things up. Um, So that's sort of the journey, I guess.
0: Did, Did you get in a mystery because you like mystery or because that was the genre that most enabled you to be able to tell the story you wanted to tell?
1: That's a fascinating question because I just wanted to write a book. And so I was getting rejected left and right. And uh, there was actually, and it's not often that you get a rejection that's helpful, uh, not to mention anything specific. And this, this rejection was from a publisher who says, it's not really literary. It's not a romance. It's not a mystery. I don't know what it is. Therefore, I don't know how to market it. And my agent said, go to someone who will tell you what's wrong with it. And so I took it to a book club that met in our neighborhood in, in Marietta, Georgia, and 25 women read the, the manuscript and then and then let me sit in on their critique which was in, interesting in many ways but what i learned in listening to them take the book apart is that i i recognized that i had three subplots that i didn't need and when mm-hmm. i took and when i took those out the manuscript went from a 150,000 word mishmash to a 75,000 word mystery suspense novel. I didn't even know what my genre was until probably the 8th or ninth draft. No, oh, that's
2: amazing. Man
1: what's that yeah yeah you are
2: You're a brave, brave man. man to uh <laughs> to right. sat through that with 25 women
1: it was fun yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun i lo- one of the things i learned i had there was a line where lark says i'll just jump in the shower and i'll be right there they said we do not jump in the shower that's right we, <laughs> yeah. savor, we savor the experience
0: <laughs> oh yes oh yes
3: <laughs> I-, I have um, to so- ask you a question how long is it taking now to write? a book
1: oh i've got procrastination nailed uh i'm really good at procrastination um it'll take anywhere from nine months six to nine months to write a first draft to two years um, okay. Oh yeah, it just, it just depends. And what's, what's nice is I'm not working with a gun at my head. I mean, there are friends of mine and maybe some of you are in the same position where, you know, you've got to turn out a novel in nine months to a year. I couldn't do that. I mean, I probably could, but it wouldn't be fun anymore. Um, so I, I, I let the book take its time. Yeah.
3: That's the way to get eight revisions. (laughs) If you're going to love it.
0: Oh yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So now you fake, mentioned this. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, fake went actually kind of fast because I was working on it in 2018, and I began to think, you know, there's an election coming up, and this really needs to come out, you know, by the fall of 2019. And I went to my agent at the end of 2018, and I said, When do you need the manuscript? She said, In a month, and I hadn't <laughs> finished. And I hadn't finished the first draft yet, so. Oh. I wrote, you know, like a madman for a month and then got it to beta readers. And so I got it to my agent, uh, uh, two, I I went through two quick revisions and got it to her within two months. And it got published at the end of 2019 in time for the primaries.
3: Perfect. Astonishing.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned this earlier, are you a, are you a plotter or are you a
1: pantser? I I am a planter um, ah. i like to know where i'm going but i don't plan as effectively as en- enough as i think and so usually about halfway through the book even though i know how it's going to end i hadn't really thought enough about how i'm going to get there so i become almost by default a planter or a a, a pantser by just writing by the seat of the, my pants and I've, I've discovered that you can procrastinate only so long, and then you need to get off the couch and start to mm-hmm. write. And, and I keep a journal, a writing journal, so that I can see how the, the project, unsp- uh, how the creative process goes. And there are a couple of times where I've written, you know, I'm working on chapter 35 today. I have no idea how it's going to end. And, you know, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I figured it out. You know, you just write and things show up, it goes back to just enough light for the next step. And sure. and that's the serendipity of it. Because I think I think you need to allow for being surprised as well. So that things can go in a direction you don't necessarily plan.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Hank, Phillipy, e. Ryan earlier, and I think she kind of does. She has said before, she does the same thing, like she shows up that day. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know where this is going, but we're going to go find out people yeah. will come up to her and be like, that twist would took me totally by surprise. She's like, yeah, me too.
1: Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's amazing.
0: Well, she's a wonderful person. Um, so you finished the story. What do you hope readers feel or think when they finish the story and they close the book? We'll talk about fake specifically.
1: I think I want them to want the next one. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I consider the, the, probably the best thing that ever happened. Uh, one of my beta readers, as uh, a journalist in in tampa and uh she read she she read the book i mean she read she she finished the novel and i think i got a text from her like at two in the morning saying i need a lark fix you know when, <laughs> when's the next one coming and uh and so that i think is what i hope people will will want is where's this going to go and i left fake with a major cliffhanger you know i buttoned that one up but you know there's enough going on in her personal life now that um uh i think people will want to know what happens next and i want to know too cuz i haven't figured it out <laughs> it hasn't happened yet
2: and it was it's a very cinematic book you can really
1: thank you, know, you. moves well, like a film Thank you. And there's been a person uh, I've been working with who has been dedicated to trying to get this book or my books as a TV series. And he's he's got chops and he's got connections, but um, uh, it just hasn't happened yet. And uh, Hollywood is fickle. So I'll just keep writing as good, as good a book as I can. And hopefully one day there's enough of a canon of of lark novels that uh that hollywood will finally say ah here's one we can do
0: hollywood is probably more fickle than the publishing industry
1: oh way way more way more you know There's you talk one, about there was one there was one studio executive who said about my novel he said you know i would have greenlighted this project if your protagonist had been a vampire <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you do a rewrite where Mark <laughs> is a vampire? Oh, no, gosh. but
1: thanks for asking.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious.
2: That, that is you. a great That I hope you use that line often. Okay, I will. That's a lot.
1: Thank you. Well, that and there's hilarious. there's there this this has nothing to do with me, but I was at a writer's conference and there was a person who was involved in writing my cousin Vinny. And he tells the story, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'll, I'll I'll give you the the Cliff's Notes version. They wanted to write, uh, they wanted to to um, who was the woman, Marissa Tomei. Uh, yes. they, they wanted to dump her, and he wrote. This is during the shooting. They said we think Vinnie can handle the whole thing, and so the writer came up with the biological clock scene. Which is which is one of the most memorable scenes from the movie, where she's there at the cabin, and you know she wants to get married, and you know my biological clock is ticking. And that's so memorable and he wrote it in order to keep her in the job, and she won an Academy Award, and it shows how short sighted Hollywood can be, and how a writer with chops and courage and mercy was able to salvage her job and her career
0: yeah i i haven't seen that movie in a number of years but i remember her as being you know a presence in that movie she just wasn't a throwaway character she was a presence in that movie i can't even imagine it without her
1: exactly she's the helper character and uh and that that archetype Is so important in a movie. And she just made, you know, it was the writing, but also the acting. I mean, you can't, you have, you have, you have to have them both.
0: Yeah. So short sighted and was the least. So we're going to, we're going to start our lightning round here. Uh oh. Um, Two two quick questions uh, that we always end the show with we ask everybody. So the first, no explanation needed. What's the best book you've read recently, title and author?
1: the one that pops to mind is called furious by jeffrey james higgins um it's 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 a thriller it's it's textbook if you write thrillers you should read this one to see how it's done
0: very good i'll make a note of that thank you um and the last one which is just kind of a fun question is what alcoholic beverage do you think pairs best with fake
1: any alcoholic beverage oh that's
0: not no that's cheating
1: can't do that that's well one, no, no. I, I would say i would say a cabernet
0: okay we'll go with it
1: well,
0: yeah there's there's no any there's no there you can't no wrong the answer. question <laughs> right yeah, there's no wrong yeah there isn't a wrong answer but except for maybe any alcoholic beverage I, that was eat. the
1: wrong answer i, <laughs> I failed on the lightning round which is which is exactly what I expected to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not going to let you get away with that one. Well, John, this has been a great conversation and thank you so much for joining us.
1: This has been Um, fun. Thank you.
2: We've really enjoyed
1: it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: uh, We look look for anybody who hasn't read Fake, go out there and read it. And we will look forward to seeing more of Lark and where she might go. Thank you. So we will talk to everybody else in a month. And, uh, and we're we're recording at the at middle of November. So by the time we talk to you all again, the holidays will be upon us. So Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Happy New Year. And uh, we'll catch you all next time. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. Like what you heard? Subscribe to us wherever you're listening and never miss an episode. And before you go, would you do us a favor? Leave us a rating or review, please? Just like with books, ratings and reviews help other listeners find us and spreads the word. Until we meet next month with a new guest, stay safe, stay well, and above all, ladies, don't forget your lipstick.